We're going to be in Micah 6 today. We're going to be in Micah 6 as we uh, look at a very popular passage, very often quoted passage, uh, not as often quoted as probably some of the ones that are out there in the world, like Philippians 4.12, where people just say that randomly to mean whatever they want it to mean. People quote John 3.16 a lot as well. So, you know, like, you run into, like, a casual person in the world, you'd be like, oh, they probably know this verse. So this one doesn't really fall under that. I don't think too many people who don't follow the Lord would be highly aware of this. But if you've spent any time in the Word, this should be something that is familiar to you, something that has, uh, you've heard, something that probably makes its way onto a plaque somewhere in somebody's house eventually. You know, there are some Bible verses that don't make their way onto plaques, right? You know, Jesus wept doesn't like sit like on somebody over somebody's like kitchen set or anything like that. Unless it does. So, I mean, that's cool for you. But But we're going to be in Micah 6, 8. And so I'm just going to read it. And hopefully the familiarity of it doesn't get in the way of what the Lord wants to talk about uh, through the passage here. So, Micah 6, 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Again, this is a very, very popular passage, particularly um, that last part, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And it's probably, I don't know, you would call it like a quirk of mine, but uh, I like to take and examine uh, words that are often used in kind of Christian circles, in religious circles, and really try to uh, examine and understand them and differentiate between what like a worldly person who has kind of interaction with these words would mean when they're talking about it, and what the Lord is meaning when he says these things, because I think when we run into passages like this, which use some familiar words to us, we, we often think, well, I kind of get the gist of what's being said. And uh, it, there's really a lot of profoundness to what's being said here, because essentially he's answering a question that he asks uh, himself here, really, um, as the Lord makes this proclamation in chapter 6 to begin. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. Micah the prophet is parallel with the timeline of when Ahaz and Hezekiah are king in Jerusalem. Uh, Ahaz is not a great king. Um, He was one of the ones who did the whole sacrifice your baby on the on the uh, altar of Molech kind of thing. Right, so he brought in that. So that, not a good king. Uh, Hezekiah, a much better king. He tore down a lot of things that were in opposition to the worship of the Lord. And so, you know, you got these, this, this kind of uh, situation going on. Now, Hezekiah has an interesting situation because if you recall, you can track all of this in Second Kings um, towards the end as Second Kings traverses through the kingly line of, of, of Israel and Judah, their split kingdoms. And uh, it ends with, uh, you know, the captivity, right? So we get to that point eventually. And Hezekiah is really the last person 
um, that you get before that happens, because Hezekiah is being warned about that coming thing, which even though he did his reforms in his day, didn't stop the judgment from coming, right? But the Lord promised him that it wouldn't happen in his day, right? And so then he, if you read through Hezekiah's life, you see that that occurs towards the end. And unfortunately for him, what happens is that, like, it seems by my estimate, um, because the, his son, the next king, uh, takes the throne at around, I believe it's 12 um, when he takes the throne, and, and Hezekiah lived for another 15 years uh, before uh, that happened. And, and from the point when he uh, didn't, or when he was told that he wasn't going to have to face this captivity, it does, you don't read of anything else that Hezekiah does that's like passionately done for the Lord. Uh, so I always think of that and I always think of that leaving of a legacy uh, that Hezekiah failed to do for his son who basically saw his father not in the, the height of his passion for the Lord, but in the waned years of apathy right? And, and so then he grows up to just view following the Lord as a religious construct and as something to easily be cast aside, and he does. And so just that's a whole side point, something to just think about as far as, which we'll get to towards the end here, but what are you, what are you showing your own children in that sense about what the Lord here requires? All that to say is Micah is speaking to a people who are eventually going to be led away into captivity because they have themselves turned away from the Lord. And throughout Micah, he's speaking consistently against them, but he does promise to restore them. He promises the future kingdom. All these, he promises to take away their enemies. These are all kind of messianic prophecies, but interspersed in there, we see the plight that really faces Israel, right? And we see a lot of indictments against the prophets that are in Israel time, which are not prophets. They are false prophets, as Micah is speaking against them. We see proclamations against the religious leaders. We see these things, and and we look at the beginning here of chapter 6, and he even says, we'll just begin at verse 3, and he says, My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Go and testify against me. I brought you from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now. What Balak king of Moab counseled, what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. We'll cover that in a second. With what shall I come before the Lord? So he's interjecting this question here of, well, what is it that is needed? He said, and bow myself before God. Shall I come before him with burnt offering, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So there's there's the question: What is God concerned with in the life of Israel? What will restore, or what is He even all about? Because they are not following Him, and He's making this proclamation against them, and He's revealing in this proclamation that. They have what Will uh, kind of spoke about earlier today when he was doing the ordination, the, the form of godliness on the outside in some sense, where they will come to the temple and make maybe a sacrifice, be like, well, I sinned or whatever, so I'll just make the sacrifice, do the thing or whatever, right? But 
there's something missing behind it. God is not, he's saying he's not pleased by just the show of sacrifice and by the the keeping of rituals and the keeping of the feasts and these things, but that there is something more important that he is concerned with that they are neglecting. And when we, just as a quick highlight, back in verse 5, with Balak king of Moab and Balaam the son of Beor counseled him, you can read that story in Numbers. It's a pretty interesting story. So the Moabites were afraid of the people of Israel. They, Israel was marching along. They had defeated Egypt, right? And so word of that had spread into the region and the people were afraid in that region. And so the king of Moab, he's like looking around and he's like, hey, there's this diviner, this guy, uh, Balaam. So let's get him to curse God's people. It's a very interesting story because you read the story and you're like, is Balaam like a follower of the Lord? What is he right now? Because uh, he, get, he goes to get Balaam to do this, and Balaam's like, I can't say anything except what the Lord says for me to say. And you're like, that sounds like a pretty solid guy as far as following the Lord is concerned. And he's like, so whatever. Now, the Lord had already told him not to go to, to meet with this guy, so he disobeyed that. So you get a clue that Balaam's not really that great. But so he goes, and he keeps saying this thing of like, I can't say except that which the Lord says for me to say, nothing more, nothing less, or whatever. And the king of Moab is like, whatever, try it. And um, so he's like, okay, well, I'm going to say I told you so, right? And so he goes, and three times he does this, and three times he blesses Israel, and the king of, of Moab is like, okay, well, that didn't go as planned. And then we leave from that interaction, and then you read right into the next interaction that happens is that the people of Israel committed uh, adultery with the the Moabite women in the sense that they united with them and then they went after their gods. And you don't read about it in that passage, but in other passages we learn that Balaam, the counsel that he gave, right, was like, look, I can't curse them, but if you can get the people to disobey the Lord themselves, well, he'll be against them. Right, and so he's like, he's like, so we should do this, should do this thing. So they did, and then they're in that situation. So again, right, the Lord here, as we're coming up to the famous passage, he's here, he's, he's indicating that that there is a deeper concern than he has about this relational aspect to himself, because the people had, he's like, remember, remember. In that time period when you were in the wilderness and you went after idols and you were led astray into that, right? Remember that counsel there that you may know what it really means to follow righteously after the Lord. It's not just like do this, do that, or whatever, but that there's something more that we're talking about here, right? And so he then says it's not the offerings and the things that please him. Right, but that there's something else. And so we pick it up in verse 8, and it's, it's pretty uh, straightforward what he says here. But he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And it, it means basically this. He has made it obvious, made it plain to you that which is pleasing. Right? You know, I think oftentimes we think of the words good and evil and bad and 
good, and right and wrong, and we think that these things exist somehow outside of the Lord in the sense like, well, it's just a good thing, as if good had a definition outside of what the Lord says and who the Lord is. What we have to understand here is that what is good is what is pleasing to the Lord. You don't look at something and say, well, it's good, so therefore God is like confined to think that this thing is good because I say that this thing has some goodness to it. Well, no, the Lord is the one who's defined that which is good because it is that which is pleasing to himself. Uh, He has created all things and therefore he ultimately is the definer of that. So he's made it plain too, which is great. He, he hasn't like hidden that away. But it says here he's made it plain what pleases him. And what does the Lord require? The word require is pretty interesting because it, it means to be sought out. So basically, it's like, what is the Lord looking for? What does the Lord want out of your life? What pleases him in your life? And this is an interesting question because this is kind of a, a, one of those large scale questions that we think about. When we think about life, when we think about asking people about the Lord or any kind of religious kind of thing, Pew Research shows that you know about 80%, which is actually a low number comparatively to previous Pew Research uh, results uh, of Americans w- would identify that they believe in God, right? 80%, which is down from like 96 back in like the 80s and then down from like 91 in the 90s and stuff like that. So it's, it's, you know, it's a declining number. It's still a pretty high number. But the interesting thing about that is that high number of percentage, uh, you still look at that and a third, they broke it down into separate categories and there's some overlap, but ultimately it accounts to a third of that 80% don't believe that the God of the Bible is is accurate or anything like that. Uh, so uh, we're really reducing that number there, right, to, to where we're getting a, a whole group of people and a whole cultural identity where, where what we understand about the Lord and what he wants for us and where people think, oh, I'm doing right things or I'm doing good things or I'm doing things that the Lord either is pleased by or he, at least he should be pleased by or whatever, that we, we were, we're in a situation where people are detaching that from what the Lord has said, where they think, hey, I can know what is right and what is good and pleasing to the Lord and what he requires of me without the Bible or without turning to his word, or rather that it's this spiritual feeling, that it's this thing that they launch themselves forward into and say, yes, I am doing the right thing. And it's such a dangerous way to be. It's such a dangerous way to be because there is no, there is no anchor there. There is only the wandering of your own guesswork as to what you're thinking is pleasing the Lord. And let me tell you, it's the saddest way to live a life. We look culturally out around us and we can see people without peace. We can see people who have no ability to interact with each other 
in meaningful ways. We can see people afraid to just even leave their house and do anything. We see people given over entirely to their lusts. We see people confused about who they are. And we sit and we wonder and we we live a life and people go, well, I don't know what God wants from me. Well, it's just impossible to know. It's a mystery. We even try to disguise it in some kind of like pseudo-Christian language and being like, well, God's will is so mysterious, who could know? So we're just going to kind of skate by and pretend like uh, I'm sort of doing God's will, but I guess, who's to say? And look, God has made it plain what he wants out of our life. We don't have to sit and guess what God wants from us. We don't have to make up how we can be pleasing to God. Because he's not hiding it from you as if he didn't want you to be pleasing to him. His desire is not for your destruction, but that you would enter into the fullness of a relationship with him that bears the fruit of life that is found in him. He's not trying to hide himself from you. He's making it very clear that which he asks of us. And so what is it that he asks of us is threefold. It's to do justly, it's to love mercy, and it's to walk humbly with your God. We're going to define these things, and then we're going to, all three of them, and then we're going to go back and do some interesting applications out of them. But do justly. The phrasing and the words, they come to mean to cause to be done or to fashion that which is uh, judicially appropriate. A kind of a good way to think of it is to do the things that stem from an understanding of being in the right spot, of being correct in the sense of you're in a right relationship to the Lord. Right, so it's the things that come from knowing that your relationship with the Lord is right. If you are in a right relationship with the Lord, that means that you, there are actions that flow from that. But this, we have to understand, we we run a, a great risk very often. It's why Paul spends most of his letters addressing this, It's the quintessential problem that we have with the notion of righteousness is that we always default back to righteousness in the law. We hear the words justice, we hear the words righteousness, we hear all of these things and we think to ourselves, where's the list of things that make me right before the Lord? And we want to take this and we want to break ourselves of that. Because let me tell you, it's not pleasing to the Lord to simply keep a list of rules. It's not. It's not pleasing to the Lord for you to check a a set of creeds. None of those things are pleasing to the Lord. What he's looking for demands something more. So turn with me to Romans 1 because this gives us perhaps the greatest insight into sin and therefore righteousness into sin and therefore righteousness. So Romans 1 does something wonderful for us here. The entire book of Romans is devoted to the notion that righteousness is established by faith. And so it breaks it down for us along the way. But in Romans chapter 1, 
we get, for me, this is personally one of the greatest, one of my most favorite passages as it helps keep that focus on what is righteousness all about. Right, uh, so look here. If you guys, I have to make math and physics references because I teach math and physics. So like I have to throw one in just like out of necessity. But if you guys have ever sat in a math class that does proofs, there's a thing called proof by negation. Right, it means you don't prove the thing. You, you make the negative statement and you prove that to be crazy. And then you're like, oh, therefore the positive is true. So that one was for you. Very good. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So we're going to look here, and we're not going to define righteousness. We're going to actually see a deep, deep root of sin, right, of sinfulness. Uh, Because I think often when we think of sin, what we simply uh, relegate our thinking to is like, I did something bad. And often we, we even treat it in our conversation that way, where we say things like, oh, well, now that I've sinned, I should do this uh, thing. We're not realizing that uh, there is a whole aspect to sinfulness that is apart simply from the actions that you take. But rather, as we'll see here, look right here, it is essentially the birthplace of sinfulness. Let's begin in verse 18, and then I'll highlight for you where we are. So chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of sin. How is it revealed? Well, it's revealed, first of all, to who it's revealed. It's revealed uh, against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because all of that is evident, and rather than acknowledge what is evident and plain, they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, the darkening of the heart, the progress into the fullness of sinfulness begins very simply with a lack of a glorification of God. It doesn't have to be that, oh, I didn't lie today, so like sin wasn't a part of what was in my life. The question really is, is, did I glorify God today? Man, that's a tougher question. And not only did I, glory, did, I, did I glorify God today, but did every moment of my life glorify God today? This is, this is sin wraps us all up in its, in its uh, confines when we really think about where it begins. Because to glorify God, I think, you know, we sing songs and we do, and we're like, oh, praise the Lord, glorify God, this thing. Right. Again, um, it's like a thing that I do where I'm like, oh, what's this? This Christian word that people use a lot and they use it, overuse it in my sense. And right? Glorify God. It's about the glory of the Lord. It's about who he is innately, how awesome he really is just by being who he is. When we think of the glory of the Lord, we think of him descending upon Mount Sinai and he's so glorious that the earth can't contain him. 
that the mountain starts shaking and it's splitting up and there's fire and, and the people of Israel are like, Moses, talk to him because we're going to die. Like Everybody's like, he's so immensely powerful, significant, beautiful, and valuable that even the fabric of time and space can't really contain him when he comes in the fullness of who he is. That's awesome. If somebody were to walk in here who was famous, we'd be like, that dude's amazing. And we would just like turn and be like, wow, we're no longer focused on anything else around us. For me, it'd be like, well, Kobe's dead, but whatever. Let's say Kobe walked in here. That would be a whole nother thing. First of all, if he currently walked in here, but say it was a few years ago before he died, he walked in here and be like, hey, listen, I just want to talk to him about basketball for a little bit, you know, see, see what he has to say about it. I'm sure he has a lot to say. It would be one of those situations where you look at it and you're like, we're drawn and we give the attention necessary. When somebody of importance and who we deem has significance and value walks in, we treat them as such by giving them the necessary attention and responding appropriately. And yet God, who innately possesses all the glory, we disregard. Uh, we, we don't just disregard just by saying like, oh, you're not awesome. We disregard him very practically by not considering what he says. We disregard him by not taking him into account in the trials that we face in life. Uh, this is what is meant in the Old Testament when it says to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's to acknowledge the significance and the importance and give him the due reverence. And from that place, that's the right place to, to be, you can then walk in wisdom. Because you can't walk in wisdom. You can't know what to do. You can't fashion for yourself some kind of action to do that is appropriate and righteous if it's not beginning with God. Paul goes so far as to say at the end of Romans 14 that anything not done in faith is sin. You're like, that, that's a lot. That's a lot. Look, basically it's this, guys. Righteousness is not about you measuring up to a, some standard in the law. Righteousness is about you acknowledging the reality and the significance of who the Lord is. Look, and what God is seeking after in your heart is, is that in your daily activity, in the choices you make, that those stem from a place of acknowledging the significance and the weight and the importance of who He is in reality. He is the most important person always and every decision you make must stem from that beginning point it must be that you ask yourself in the morning not what do I want to do today but what does God want me to do today not what pleases me in this but what pleases God in this we're not, it's an entire shift of focus. This is what, what, what God is after. A heart that 
recognizes what the right relationship to him is and then acts accordingly. We're going to come back and see how Jesus fulfills some of these things and some applications, but hold on to that. We'll come over here. The next part, Micah 6.8, to love mercy. So the word mercy is the word said. And the word love is not hesed, so it's not hesed, hesed. That'd be very interesting. Um, But uh, the word there is for a mutual human kind of love. It's probably best translated as uh, what we would think of as like a familial, brotherly, or affection, or something a bit deeper. There's a certain passion associated with it. So the idea is is this, is that you would have a, that he's, he's seeking out, a passion or a devotion for Hesed. Which is not just to say that you appreciate God's Hesed, because the, the word Hesed is not exclusively used in the Old Testament to refer to God's devotional love to the people of Israel, though it is expanded upon and used in that context over and over again. But it is also used in other places and it's just simply describing kindness or goodness. Uh, when people are acting in a kindness or a goodness. So what is he basically saying? He's saying to the degree, essentially, that is most known uh, in God's manifestation of, of Hesed, right? Which to the people of Israel is his covenant love for them, which uh, extends mercy and grace to them. It, it does not judge them according to their iniquity. Otherwise, they would be wiped out. He always leaves a remnant. He is merciful even in judgment with them. And then he extends blessing upon blessing in Israel. This, this idea here is that he's, he's saying that, that what God is seeking out is, is that there is this devotion and this passion on our end to reflect God's love. To do what God does, and in other words, specifically the, the great revelation there of his love is this dual mercy and grace, this dual coin of mercy and grace, to be a people who delight in, who have an affection for, who are passionate about showing mercy and grace. I'll just leave it at that. We'll come back when we talk about Jesus. So. <laughs> Number three, what he's looking for, to walk humbly. To walk means to go roundabout. And to be humble is to simply be lowly. And look, when we think of humility, this is another one of those words that I think is often really not well understood. Because we... Or at least maybe in a modern day sense, it's not well understood, probably because we're so focused on things like self-esteem and things like that. So if, you, if you're overly focused on like self-esteem and those things, then you really don't under, it's really hard to get a good grasp of what it means to be humble. Because uh, we think of humility and we think of, oh, well, I just need to think that like I'm a terrible person or something, right? As if that was like, and that... Um, there's nothing that I can do and I should wallow in the self-pity of myself and be like, I'm humble. That's not at all what we're talking about with this lowliness. What we're talking about is that God is seeking out those who understand the true lowliness of their state because we are truly lowly. We're not just like using cultural measures of like, oh, I didn't get a high school diploma or whatever, so I'm, I'm nothing or whatever. No, no, no. Before the Lord, you are nothing. <laughs> right? 
Uh, person to person, you might have, you know, one thing that you're good at, this person's good at, and it's not not humble to acknowledge the things that maybe you have skill in or somebody else has skill in, or not, right? What we're talking about is, is that before the Lord, you have to understand He's the creator, you're the created. And so there is absolutely no comparison of you ever being anything but humble before Him. You are entirely, I don't know if you knew this, but you are entirely dependent upon the Lord at every moment. Every single moment. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, like spiritually speaking. No, physically speaking too. You are entirely dependent on the Lord at all times. At any moment, it could be like, we're done here. Everybody's heart stops. We're all done, right? It's like no big, it would be nothing for him. And there would be nothing we could do to change that. But that's not something to be afraid of, but it is something to acknowledge. You're not, it's not something where, where you're thinking to yourself, oh no, God is out to get me. I can't believe he's the one who's in control and I'm not in control. This is indeed actually the way you were meant to live was with the understanding that he is the one in control because you thinking that you're in control is exactly the kind of thing that leads you into sinfulness. And so he's calling us to walk humbly, to go about our lives with this attitude of lowliness before him. So we see these three things. We see these three and we're like, very good. What does it mean? Look, in Christ, the veil that is over the Old Testament is lifted and there is a deeper understanding beyond just what you see and like, oh, okay, well, the, there's the covenant that the Jews had, which they would read in, they'd understand, and be like, no, we're, we're going to set that aside because there's Christ. And so look, let's take a look at what it means to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly in light of the person of Christ. So let's wrap up these applications of these by going to Romans 5 for the first one, to do justly. Romans 5. Like I said, Romans is all about justification by faith, and therefore kind of uh, explains all of these things in sequence very well. Look at this. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified... In other words, therefore, he's calling the people, the Roman people, to acknowledge you are standing in a place of righteousness before the Lord because of faith. That's what he's saying, right? Therefore, having been justified by faith, what does that result in? What actions stem from that place? Well, these right here. Well, first off, there's the acknowledgement that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, God wants us to be a people who are at peace. At peace with in ourselves because we know and are absolutely confident we know the right relationship that we have to the Lord. We are justified by faith and therefore we know that everything around us is never God against us. Right? Every single piece of your life in Christ is something that you can say is this is never an instance of God being against me. Why? Because of faith. Because of Christ, 
and because you believe that Christ has set you right with the Lord. Look, if you really think that Christ has set you right with the Lord, then that means that all the trials, the tribulations, the struggles, the sufferings, they've all passed through the hands of a God who loves you before they've come to you. And if they've passed through his hands, that means they were carefully provided so that way you would know him more, so that way you would be used by him, so that way you would be a partaker of his divine nature. We have to be a people who do justly, who see life from a place of peace. Continuing, he says, because of the justification, we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The thing that flows in Christ and our understanding in Christ as being the right thing to do isn't just to do a set of things. It isn't just to be like, I love, by love I'm being sarcastic, I love when people talk about how like, oh, aren't we all just, aren't Christians just for like love? And that thing, you know how the world says things, right? And they're like, we're all for the same thing, just loving each other, right? That's just, and I'm like, we're not talking about the same thing. Because they, even, even if we're talking about the same thing, we're not talking about the same power. Because the world's like, we need to love each other, and they go, just do it. Just go be loving, go do that thing. And guys, the right thing to do with God's call to love is to ask him to give you that love. You see, the Christian life is not one that is so inherently superior in its like morality list that it's like, we should follow this because the morals outweigh all of the morals that are found elsewhere, right? Though we could argue that they are. But, uh, but rather, the Christian life is one where it does something incredible, where it says, it calls us to this moral highness but it says is that you don't have the capacity to achieve it, so you need to go somewhere to get it. And even if the world agrees with us that we should be a loving people or that we should establish peace or blah, 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 they don't go about it from the same power. Guys, the right thing to do when you understand that you're justified by faith is to go to God for what you need. Not to go to your resources, your understanding, your ideologies, your traditions. None of these things have the power to do what God is calling you to do. But we have access to God. So look, don't waste what he's given by being in the flesh trying to do what he wants to do in your own strength. The thing that you need to be doing, the thing that pleases him is when you go to him asking for help. I'm going to skip the next part real quick because I'm going to tie it into another one. But love, mercy in Christ. What are we talking about when we're talking about loving mercy in Christ? Maybe to the Jewish mind they would think there's maybe an end to where like God's mercy sits and his loving kindness. I mean, the Psalms indicate that they had a pretty good understanding that there's not or whatever, but 
but they might think to themselves, like in the midst of like when they're being cast aside into Babylon and things like, oh, the Lord's love has failed, things like that. And, but in Christ, we have such an assurance. We have such an extension of just how far God's love goes. How willing is he to withhold judgment and extend mercy and grace. How willing is he to do that? He's willing enough to give his son. That he would suspend judgment all the way unto, through the suffering and pain of giving his only son. That is a radical amount of love. And he wants us to have that passion for that. We don't have it within us to do, right? Again, we already talked about you need to go to God to get it and then give it out, whatever. But, man, we should be delighted. We should be pleased to be spent by God like that. To be a sacrifice for others, right? I think too often we're so consumed by our own self-love that we forget that Christ has called us to deny ourselves and to instead treat the entirety of our lives for the sake of those around us. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, he made it very clear. He would much rather be with the Lord. In chapter 1. Philippians, and in chapter 3. But anyway, in Philippians chapter 1, he made it very clear. He'd much rather be with the Lord. For me to live is Christ. To die is what? It's gain. He's like, there's a, there's a better of the two options here. Right? But he says, but nonetheless, it is more needful. Necessity compelled him. Understanding the love of Christ for those around him. He didn't view his life as anything by which he was seeking to please himself. To gain for himself. His life was solely a sacrifice for others. To the glory of the Lord. This is what that kind of devotion to that pursuit is what the Lord is after. He wants us to love and be a demonstration of his love to that degree. It's too challenging, you know what I mean? Like it's so so challenging. But Christ can do that in us. We have to just present ourselves before him for it. You know, but where is that heart? Are you more concerned with preserving something for yourself? I think we live in such a wonderful time of convenience and things. And we sit, and I struggle with this all the time. It's like, well, how much have I amassed for myself just to please myself, to make myself comfortable versus my outward look? towards my fellow man who is in a greater need, not just physically, but spiritually than I am. And to what am I willing to give unto that? Right? Am I not willing to give unto that? Because that's not the same heart that the Lord has, is it? He was willing to give to the uttermost. 
Jesus goes in Matthew 7, he tells us to do good to those who hurt you, pray for those who spitefully use you. These are all just just evidences of this love that he's seeking after, that he's put pouring into us that that is far greater than than anything we could do. And it's the it's that that pursuit of that. That pursuit of being made more unto more like unto that, you know, that, that we want to be a part of. Finally, to walk humbly. This one I wanted to focus on something quite specific. Uh, turn with me to Titus 2, where we did our scripture reading. You see, when we understand the littleness that we have in our lives, if we truly embrace that, it results in a certain way of life. And there's a couple of really freeing things. I'm just going to highlight Philippians 2, before we get into this Titus 2 passage, but Philippians 2 highlights the, the idea of, of esteeming others better than yourself. This is that, that life of humility. Right, we already discussed it in the love, this idea of being of service to another person and kind of viewing that as the, as the end goal, that that's really what, what you're, you're pursuing. Philippians 2, again, is what uh, covers that. One freeing aspect about this walking humbly that I wanted to share is in Philippians 3 when Paul says that not that he has already obtained, but that he presses forward to receive the call of the upward prize in in Jesus, the the prize of the upward call in Jesus. We have to understand that this life that we're living before the Lord is not one of achieving a goal. Uh, God isn't interested so much in you even accomplishing a certain set of tasks. He doesn't really need us to do anything. Jesus made that pretty clear when he was coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and the Pharisees were like, you should probably tell the people to stop worshiping you. And Jesus is like, if they stop, the stones will cry out because it's going to be fulfilled, right, what, what was spoken. God doesn't need us to fulfill what he's going to do. You know what I mean? He's going to do it. We have the option of being a part of it or not, but he's going to get done what he's going to get done. He doesn't need you to do that because it's not about the doing, right? It's not about, it's not about the doing. Uh, he's accomplishing what he's accomplishing through you, but he's also accomplishing something in you. Right, and that is, is making you more like unto Christ. You're, be, you're, you're getting to be a partaker of his divine nature through his promises. You're getting to have a foretaste of the completion that, that you will experience at the end of all things. You're never there when you're here. And that's okay. Because you're not meant to be there until you're there. <laughs> right? You're, you're not meant to be complete until you're complete. But you are being completed. And it's okay that you're on that journey of completion. And you need to sit and be okay with that it's okay. Right? I think we, we often, you know, this generation of kids, these kids, um, right, they, they, they think too much, they've been pressured too much to, to do things in the world, worldly thoughts, to set 
certain like milestone goals achievements of being like I gotta have like you know the 401k set up at this time and this thing and get the diploma at this and that and whatnot and all these things you could do it you could not do it doesn't matter this is probably not the advice parents want me to want to hear me saying right <laughs> it doesn't matter why uh, because it's it's about that that journey of not of achievement but that journey of closeness to the lord it's about taking steps and growing in closeness to him you know and and we have to be okay with that process right because um, it is always going to be a process that is never done. But on the flip side of that, because it's never done, we have to never settle for it thinking it's done. Which means we're also always constant. While we're always content knowing that it's not done and that God is working in us, we're always also discontent with where we are, knowing that we want to progress forward. This is a life of humility. One more. So now to Titus 2 to wrap up our thoughts on humility and then to wrap up what we're doing here. Unfortunately, I didn't end early for you. I'm sorry. So, but I think for our Americanness, uh, this is a very relevant statement that the Lord makes for us here in verse 13 of chapter two of Titus that we saw in our scripture reading. It calls us to look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. To so look forward to that. Right, it doesn't call for us to manifest his kingdom and his reign right here and now. His kingdom is with us by faith. And if it's with us by faith, it's not for us to manifest in person here because it's by faith. His kingdom is coming and we're a people waiting for it. And if you really had to think about it, uh, in this way, our task is not to bring the kingdom to the earth in the sense that all righteousness fills the earth like waters covers the sea, which is what's going to happen when, when Christ comes. The task is to invite others to wait with us. That's what it is. We're not calling people to show what the kingdom is like and blah, 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 and, and this kind of thing in the sense of like, let's create the government structure that the Lord wants and let's create the laws of the land that reflect what the Lord wants. Though, as a citizen where you do have the opportunity to vote in things, you know, you vote accordingly and you vote appropriately in line with what pleases the Lord for sure. But we are a people whose task in the Lord is simply to tell other people that the Lord is coming and he will bring righteousness with him. I think in our revolutionary independent tactics as we were birthed in, we think to ourselves that we have to fight so hard for the kingdom of God. We don't have to fight in the sense of we need the culture to somehow be a manifestation of God's kingdom. What we need to fight for is, is that within any culture, faith remains unto the Lord. That's what we're after. 
We're after a people who endure through a culture to the coming of our great Savior. But that's a humble thing, isn't it? It's very arrogant. I always was struck by the arrogance to think that we could bring the kingdom of the Lord. That is a really arrogant thought. Paul goes so far as to say is that we don't even really understand God's love even barely. He's like, we see in a mirror dimly. When you think of that and the audacity to say that with that little bit of understanding of God's love, we could possibly manifest the fullness of his kingdom here by our own strength, right? It's, it's, it's a slap in the Lord's face, isn't it? Right? We're not to be doing that. We're supposed to be waiting for him to come, right? Waiting for him to come, inviting people to wait for him to come, inviting people to trust in him, inviting people to follow after him, to be an example of him so that way others can also wait for him to come. This is, I'm going, I'm going to just throw this one out there before the worship team comes up, right? But your holiness, this, this idea of progressing more into being a reflection of the love of God isn't just for you to like have a sense of, yay, I am now a more loving person. It's not for you to like wake up in the morning and be like, I am now more moral than I once was. This, is, this feels nice. That is not what God giving you his word and filling you with his spirit is about. It's about you looking like Christ because the world around you needs to see Christ, not you. We are being holy because he's holy so that people are drawn and so that they too have faith in Christ and wait for him to come because they've seen him in us. This is what God is after. He wants us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly waiting for him, waiting for him, trusting in him. You know, so may that be true of us this year and every year, but this year, you know, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, we do thank you for your great love for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for calling us to yourself, Lord. And Lord, we, uh, we do ask that you would just fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we would, we would be indeed great reflections of you unto a world that doesn't know you. Lord, that we would be pleasing in your sight. We wouldn't desire simply to just walk in some kind of formality and religiosity, Lord, but that we would instead seek always to be pleasing to you, Lord, and that you would be well pleased by the sacrifice of our lives unto yourself. And so, Lord, we just thank you for who you are and your great love for us in Christ Jesus. In his name that we pray, amen.